Dr. Robert Vinoy, Old Testament History, Lecture Number 16. Between the Mesopotamian account and the biblical record of the flood, we notice that the general structure of both stories is the same, but there are differences in details. I wanted to just illustrate that a bit further. We notice both were told to build a great ship, but their dimensions are different. And I have just a couple more illustrations to give you an idea of how this works out. As far as the occupants of the ark are concerned, both stories say the hero and his family as well as animals and birds are delivered from the destruction by means of a ship. But when you come to the details again, there are differences as we have already noticed. Here the names are quite different as far as leading figure. Zuisudra, Utnapishtim, Atherwachasis, and then Noah in the biblical account. And there seems to be no etymological connection between the name Noah and these other names. In addition, in the biblical account, there are a small number of people saved on the ship. Noah was accompanied by his wife and three sons and their wives. In the Gilgamesh epic, Utnapishtim talked, and I pull from the text of his family and kin aboard the ship, as well as all the craftsmen and boatsmen. So we have all his family and kin, and all the craftsmen and boatsmen, whose names were given, so it seems like a substantial number of people. In the Atherahasis epic, the hero brought his family, his relatives, and craftsmen aboard the ship. In the Sumerian version, Zuisudra took his relatives, his wife and children, and close friends on board. So it seems the biblical account is more restricted to a small number of people. So, again, there is a difference of details. The bird incident is one more illustration where the birds were released to determine whether the conditions were suitable to leave the ark. Both the stories in Mesopotamia and the Bible have that. But again, there are differences in detail. In the Babylonian story, there are three releases of birds, and in the biblical story, there are four. But Nepishtim and Noah are both said to have released a single bird at a time while Zuithudra lets go a number each time. Udnapishtim is said to have released a dove, a swallow, and a raven in that order, whereas Noah is said to have released a raven and three doves. Note the contrast there. Noah released the raven first, and Udnapishtim released the raven last. In a book, I don't think I've mentioned it yet, but it is on your bibliography, Alexander Heidel, who wrote the volume that compared, who compared the volume that compared the Babylonian creation story with the biblical creation stories, also has written a book called The Gilgamesh Epic and Old Testament Parallels, which is a good study of the biblical account compared with the Babylonian account. I believe that's on your bibliography, page 10, next to the last entry of this particular incident. The title says that there is a mistake in logic on the part of Utnapishtim, since the raven is a more hardy bird. The logical progression would have been that utilized by Noah. 
the more hardy bird first, the doves later, whereas Utnapishtim has it turned around. In any case, there are differences in detail, so then we come to this question that we ended the last class with. What do we say about the relationship between the Babylonian and the biblical story? How do we explain the similarities and the differences? I think we have three responses to that question, and I will mention them and discuss them briefly. First, the Mesopotamian account is derived from a proto-Semitic biblical account. Again, I will discuss what I mean about that in a minute. Second, the biblical account is derived from the Mesopotamian account. It reverses it. Third, both go back to a common original source. First, the Mesopotamian account was borrowed from a proto-Semitic biblical account. It seems quite clear that the Mesopotamian accounts were in existence by at least 2000 BC. There is a lot of dispute about the Babylonian version going back to about 2000 BC, whereas the biblical account would be about 1200 to 1400 BC, associated with Moses and his writing of the Pentateuch. The relative dating suggests, with the extant text, that the Mesopotamian account is earlier. Now, it's for that reason that many have said the biblical account is derived from the Mesopotamian account. However, on your bibliography, you'll notice an entry at the bottom of page 10, the third from the bottom, Clay's The Origin of Biblical Traditions, Yale University Press, 1923. In that volume, Clay makes this statement on page 165 and 166. He says, The argument that alleges the story originated with the Sumerians because the earliest version of it is found in the Sumerian language is no more final than it would be to say that a work of Shakespeare has a German origin because a copy of it written in a German language was found in Berlin. You see, suppose 2,000 years from now, people were excavating our civilization and turned up a copy of Shakespeare written in German in its earliest extant copy of Shakespeare. It doesn't prove a whole lot. It just happens to be that that's the earliest version that you happen to have of that story. Clay proposes that the Gilgamesh epic was originally written in an Amorite language that became Akkadianized about 2000 BC. Now the Amorites were Semitic people living to the west of Mesopotamia. He feels that the whole story was brought into Mesopotamia and Akkadianized about 2000 BC. He said it's an Amorite legend which Semites brought from the West. Now, this is Clay's proposal, but if you thought that the proto-Semitic account here is in Sumer, and that same proto-Semitic account going down into the biblical account, it could be that out of that account you get this Akkadianized version as a break-off of the proto-Semitic account in the tradition comes down into the form that we have in the biblical account and that's to say, the Akkadian is derived from the proto-Semitic biblical account. Just because you have an earlier document that's Akkadian of this story, it doesn't necessarily mean the biblical account is derived from the Mesopotamian account. 
he makes the statement on the basis of Amorite names and words that he feels are to be discerned in the Gilgamesh epic, and that gets into the linguistic discussion that he feels there is evidence that it has been Akkadianized and was originally Amorite. The second view, of course, is speculative. We really don't have any hard evidence of the proto-Semitic account of it. We certainly don't have a tablet or document, so this is somewhat theoretical. The second idea is that the Hebrews borrowed their account from the Mesopotamians. So here you were to have this Mesopotamian account or Akkadian account, and the Hebrews borrowed it, so you have the biblical account derived from the Mesopotamian account. Of course, you could ask the question here, if that's the way it happened, was there ever really a flood of the sort that we just described in the biblical account, or is this the Mesopotamian account? What's behind it is hard to say. It doesn't sound like the same sort of flood you have in the biblical story, yet the skeleton of it is. Heidel comments on this proposal, and he makes the statement on page 268, quote, As in the case of the creation story, we still do not know how the biblical and Babylonian heritages of the deluge are related historically. The available evidence proves nothing beyond the point that there is a genetic relationship between Genesis and the Babylonian versions. The skeleton is the same in both cases but the flesh and blood, and above all, the details and spirit are different. It is here that we meet the most far-reaching divergence between the Hebrew and the Mesopotamian stories, quote. I'm not sure that this kind of structure gives you sufficient explanation of why the differences, but if the biblical material was simply borrowed from the Mesopotamian, why the differences to the extent that you find them? In Von Rod's commentary on Genesis, Von Rod is someone, on many points, we would take issue with his conclusions. But he says on page 119, I think it's on top of page 11 in your bibliography, quote, Today, 40 years after the height of the Babel-Bible controversy on the relation of the biblical traditions of the Babylonian story's flood, like as in the Gilgamesh epoch, is more or less closed. A material relationship between both versions exists, of course, but one no longer assumes that it is a direct dependence of the biblical tradition on the Babylonian. He feels there is too much difference. You can't assume a direct dependence of the biblical material on the Babylonian. What he substitutes is a more refined version of this, he says both versions are independent arrangements of a still older tradition, which itself stems from perhaps the Sumerian. Now that sounds something like an independent arrangement of an older tradition, but then he goes on to say Israel met with a flood tradition in Canaan at the time of her immigration and assimilated it into their religious ideas. That is pure hypothesis, with no scrap of evidence. He just makes it as a statement. Quote, Israel met with a flood tradition in Canaan at the time of her immigration, and assimilated it into their religious ideas, end quote. There is not a Canaanite flood story, 
So he is attempting to explain the similarities on the assumption that there must have been one that the Hebrews adopted. But his other suggestion, you know, he crosses out, is not direct dependence. But he does feel they might go back to a common source somewhere. Is it reasonable, I wonder again, what common source? We don't have a lot of evidence for that. It is just something we can't speak of too directly. As for the natural and historical aspects of the flood beyond theology, he says he is not confident to express an independent opinion. It may be said, however, that even natural scientists have not considered the prevailing explanation that the numerous flood stories in the world rose from local catastrophes to be sufficient. On the one hand, the distribution of the saga among the Indians, Persians, Africans, Australians, among the Eskimos and Indians of the Americas, etc. On the other hand, there is a remarkable uniformity in the flood caused by rain required the assumption of the actual cosmic experience of primitive recollection, which, to be sure, is often clouded and often brought to new life, and is revised only later by local floods. What he is saying is the extent of the distribution of flood stories across all these nationalities and peoples locally, as, as well as the uniformity of the stories, suggests that there must have been some sort of actual cosmic experience that is behind all this. Now, the third of three possibilities is a common source of national occurrence. There, you say, there was a flood, and the tradition that comes down to Mesopotamia and the other tradition gets down to the biblical materials. In addition, there is enough recollection of what actually happened that would explain the similarities, and there has been enough diversions of transmissions to explain the differences. They both go back independently to an actual occurrence that is certainly a possibility. Von Rod suggests there must have been something behind this tradition to explain this widespread use, and I think often conservative people have pointed to the widespread and uniform character flood stories to argue for historicity. There is some force for that argument, but you have to be careful of that argument, and the reason I say that is this. If you look in your bibliography, under the last entry, page 10, Christian View of Anthropology and Modern Science and Christian Faith, page 187, they speak of the widespread distribution of the flood story and say this was thought to prove the actuality of the biblical flood, or to be evidence of the descendant of all mankind from a single nation that had once experienced it. But in commenting on the idea Anthropologists say that far more often stories of this sort fuse without migration, and they can fuse across cultural linguistic lines. They point out that there are other widespread legends that are amazingly uniform besides the flood story. One such case is the magic flight or obstacle flight, which is distributed completely around the globe among both Aboriginal and historical peoples, particularly in Europe, Asia, North America, Africa, and Indonesia.
In this tale, there is a specific structure with the flight away from an ogre and objects thrown back over the shoulder forming obstacles. Examples are a stone which becomes a mountain, a cone which becomes a thicket, and oil which becomes a body of water. Details are always given with only minor changes such as a forest or a thicket and some other liquid for oil. Then there is the statement that this tale is ancient, widespread, and uniform. The multiplicity of flood themes is likewise ancient, widespread, but not quite so uniform. In general, anthropologists feel that the widespread and geographically continuous distribution of both the magic flight and the various flood accounts is due to the transmission of the tale of one group to another, slowly spreading out from the centers of origin. The universal prevalence of flood legends cannot be considered proof of the actual reality of the flood, or that all peoples who have flood accounts, most similar to the biblical accounts, have passed them on through their generations for time and memorial. If it is so, there is a stronger proof of the occurrence of the magic flight. So you have to be careful of how you use that argument. Stories can have an event in the story that comes and then just branches out and continues to branch out until you have it pretty fantastic like that. What they are saying is a story could start here and transmit this way and it is not necessary proof of historicity just because many people have it. It can cross linguistic, ethnic, and cultural lines by diffusion and takes it to other people. Someone there takes it somewhere else, and it doesn't necessarily prove historicity. What I find striking about the flood stories is that so many peoples have it, and it's generally uniform and widespread. That may say something about, as Von Rod said, about historicity but I don't think you can use it as any kind of proof of historicity. Any questions or comments? I believe there are some from the Indians. They differ again in details, but they are closer. I think flood geologies are beyond the scope of this course. I don't think that's a biblical problem. I think it is a scientific question, but I did give you a number of other sources of books on both sides if you want to read some of that material that's under the middle of page 10, under B1. Okay, let's go on to 6. 6 is, quote, conditions governing the post-Diluvian world, end quote. We find that in chapter 9, the first 17 verses. I want to give you a few sub-points that were not on your outline sheet. So A under 6 is, quote, the directions for the propagation and maintenance of human and animal life, end quote. In the first seven verses, quote, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, quote, Be fruitful, and increase in number, and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds of the air, upon every creature that moves along the ground, and upon all the fish of the sea, they are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you, just as I gave you the green plants. I now give you everything. 
but you must not eat the meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal, and from each man too. I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. End quote. So you have directions for the propagation and maintenance of human and animal life. You notice first that Noah is told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Lest there be any doubt about that, the Lord repeats what he said to Adam and Eve. It is pleasing to the Lord for man to be fruitful and to multiply, even though he brought this judgment on mankind. Now it was the task of Noah and his family to fill the earth. Secondly, dominion of man over the animals is reconfirmed. That dominion was given back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Again, in the pre-fall condition, is reaffirmed. Here it is said that the animals are restrained by fear of man. In addition, the statement is explicit that animals are permissible for man to eat. Verse 3, quote, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, even the green herb have I given you all things, end quote. So you go back to chapter 1, verse 28, there is dominion given over the animals, and in Genesis chapter 3, 21, the Lord makes coats of skin from the animals. In Genesis 4, verse 4, you read, Abel brought of the firstling of his flock, and the fact there of the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offerings. So there are previous indications that the life of animals had been taken for the service of man, you might say, the bringing of sacrifices. The further question, did man eat of animals prior to the time of Noah? There is no explicit statement about that in Scripture one way or the other. Some people claim that only vegetables were eaten prior to this time. I am not sure you can say that dogmatically. You're really arguing from silence. The question really isn't addressed. Calvin says in his commentary, quote, Since it is of little consequence, what they mean is, I affirm nothing on the subject, end quote. Then the added qualification is in verse 4, quote, The flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood, shall you not eat, end quote. In other words, animals are to be bled, and the blood was to be out of the animal prior to eating, so that the question then comes, what was the purpose of that particular qualification? Was that considered kosher? Yes, that's part of it. Again, that question is not answered in the text. There have been various suggestions. In Wenham's commentary on Leviticus, he says the significance is elusive because you get further reference to this in the blood in Leviticus. But he says that perhaps it is to encourage reverence for life. Life is in the blood, and in addition it is the blood that atones for sin. Thus it is sacred and should not be eaten. In other words, there may be some application here of the ordinances that are later to govern blood sacrifice and to show the importance of the blood in this earlier time. 
Again, that is somewhat speculative. But animals are given to man for food, although they are not to use or eat them with the blood. In other words, they are to be bled, not just strangled and eaten. The third thing that you find is they are to be fruitful. They are to have dominion over the animals, and the animals can be eaten. The third thing is the life of man is sacred, because God protects the life of man by the death penalty for anyone who violates another person's life. Verse 6, quote, Who shall shed man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made man. End quote. I think what you find there is an important principle. It's the divine ordinance for the death penalty. If someone takes another person's life, the life of the person that does that should be taken. This is because man is made in the image of God, and man's life is sacred and should not be violated. Men are given this power to take another man's life if he commits capital offense. As God's representative, they are to enact that punishment. Now that doesn't mean we find that further in the book in Plentitude. That does not mean that it must follow in every case as the Mosaic Law develops because when you get to Numbers 35, you find that there are cities of refuge for accidental deaths as distinguished from premeditated murder. So that distinction is made, and I won't go on to read through that chapter, but the death penalty is a divine ordinance given for protecting the life of man. This is still a subject that's hotly debated. God has given those animals to man for sustenance and life, with the restriction of not eating the blood. Well, it seems to me that is related to Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. I believe it is in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, quote, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood to make atonement for the souls, end quote. It seems to me the significance of that is in connection with the further legislation with the sacrificial system, and it seems to me that sacrificial system is given up when you come to the New Testament. You have all the regulations pertaining to that, as well as all concerned with cleanness and uncleanness. The Lord said to Peter, don't consider anything unclean. All that seemed to be done away with when the one comes who has really fulfilled that which it was pointing forward to. So I would not say that provision continues on beyond the period which the ritual laws were in effect. Now I guess it could be argued that this is not mosaic. It seems to be that it is closer to the way with respect to the sacrificial system. Okay, as far as the death penalty, or even beyond just the death penalty, the right or lack of right of man in positions of governmental authority to use the power of the sword, seems to me clearly stated by Paul in Romans 13. When you get into the whole issue of pacifism and whether or not it is ever right to take another person's life, what you read in Romans 13, that every soul should be subject to the higher power. Verse 2, quote, Whoever resisted the power resisted the ordinance of God. Verse 3, quote, 
for rulers are not a terror of good works, but evil, end quote. Verse 4, for he is the minister of God for good, but if you do that which is evil, be afraid, for he bears not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God and the avenger to execute wrath upon him who does evil, end quote. It seems to be a strong sanction of the right of the government to hold the power of the sword, and I think that same issue has been addressed back here in Genesis 9. Paul doesn't seem to deny that power. He seems to support it. God has given to human government the right. That right can be misused and abused, and many governments have done that. But that doesn't mean the principle is negated. Well, that was A, quote, the directions for the propagation and maintenance of human and animal life, end quote. B is, quote, the Noitic covenant that you find in Genesis chapter 9, verse 8 through 17, end quote. God spoke to Noah and his sons, saying, quote, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that come out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is a sign of the covenant I am making between me and you, and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth, and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you, and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it, and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all the living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. So never again will all flesh be destroyed by a flood. The token is a rainbow, not that the rainbow did not exist prior to this. But now it has a special significance, and we are inclined to think when we see a rainbow that we are reminded of the promise God has made that he would never again destroy the earth, which is legitimate. But you notice in the text, verse 15, quote, The Lord says, I will remember that it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that a bow will be seen in the clouds and I will remember, end quote. You call that an anthropomorphic or anthropopathic kind of expression where God speaks in human terms to describe himself. But that bow is a reminder that God has made that promise. I think the idea is, from this point forward, the earth will be preserved as the arena in which God's plan of redemption will be worked out, and that will continue until the final judgment, till the consummation. But in the intervening period, never again is God going to do what he did at this point, in bringing a flood. Okay, let's go on to 7, which is the latter part of chapter 9. 
quote, the curse on Canaan, end quote. Verses 18 and 19 speak of the three sons of Noah, and then immediately you get this story in verse 20 down through the end of the chapter. So God said to Noah, quote, This is a sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his slave." Now, this is one of several biblical passages, but this is the primary one that has often been used to support both slavery and segregation in this country. There is a volume that is mentioned in your bibliography, top of page 11, second one, J.R. Buswell III, quote, Slavery, Segregation, and Scripture, end quote. You may be familiar with J.R. Buswell's Jr.'s Theology. This is his son, who is an anthropologist, and wrote this little volume. On page 16, he says, quote, Most of the advocates of slavery, if they consider the Negro a human being, base their entire biblical case upon the confident assumption that the Negro race was, must be identified as the descendants of Noah's second son, Ham. Thus, automatically, any and every mention of peoples in Egypt, Ethiopia, and other lands occupied the dispersal of Ham's progeny were assumed to refer to Negroes, despite the fact that these populations in historic times were non-Negroes. The length to which the pro-slavery arguments were carried to prove the association of the characteristics of Negroes with Ham in order to justify the conclusion that they were under Noah's curse, were utterly fantastic, end quote. He discusses that in more detail, but we see this passage where it says, quote, Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brethren, end quote. The text has often been used to defend slavery and segregation. Now the question is, is there any basis for that kind of a view? I think the answer is clear. No. But let's look at the passage. The story is introduced in verse 19 by reference to the three sons of Noah. Quote, These are the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham is the father of Canaan, and of them was the whole world overstripped. The interesting thing is that the curse is pronounced after that incident is not on Ham. The incident with Ham and Noah the curse is on Canaan, down in verse 25. It is not on Ham, 
Canaan is the fourth son of Ham. If you look over at chapter 10, verse 6, you read, quote, The sons of Ham were Cush, Mitzrayim, Put, and Canaan. End quote. So, out of the four sons, Canaan is the fourth. It is not necessary that they came in that order, but it is possible. But in any case, the curse is on one of the sons of Ham, Canaan. I don't think we should understand that statement of Noah so much as a curse in the sense of just an expression of wrath and anger. It is rather a prediction. I think Noah here speaks really by the revelation of the whole experience because he is giving a prophetical statement about what will be and the lines that flow out of these descendants of these three sons of Noah. So it is not just an expression of Noah's ill will. He could not know by human means the things that he speaks of in these three verses. They are striking statements, so they are the unveiling of what will be. The question, of course, is, why is the curse on Canaan instead of on Ham? What did Canaan do as the son of Ham? It is hard to answer. There is nothing that addresses that question directly in the text. I think it is reasonable to suggest that by the Holy Spirit, Noah understood and saw that characteristic that was expressed there in Ham, and what he did would be perpetuated in Canaan his son, and perhaps even to a greater degree. In addition, it's Canaan, or at least Canaan's descendants, with which the Israelites come in to a great deal of contact later on. So perhaps the answer lies in Noah's perception by the Holy Spirit that the trait shown in him is present in his son Canaan even more strongly. If you look at Leviticus 18, you have there a chapter that lists a lot of things about the Canaanites. If you look at Leviticus chapter 18, verse 24 and following, it says, quote, Defile not yourselves in any of these things, for in all these things the nations are defiled, which I cast out before you, end quote. In other words, by the inhabitants in the land of Canaan, the land is defiled. Quote, Therefore I do visit the iniquity thereof upon it, end quote. Verse 27, for all these abominations have the men of the land done who were before you in the land is defiled. End quote. Verse 30. Therefore you will keep my ordinance that you commit not any of these abominable customs which were committed before you, and defile not yourselves, for I am the Lord your God. End quote. Now one of those abominable customs of the whole first part of the chapter speaks of sexual abusive diversions, and perhaps the curse comes on Canaan, because Noah sees that tendency in the Canaanites that to a certain extent is exhibited in the father, Ham. What I want to do at this point, well, maybe I'll just make another comment on that text, because what I want to do is look at the content of the cursing and blessing that are pronounced because they are significant and have far-reaching applications. Let me just pose another question, and then we will stop for today. What was Canaan's offense, or Ham's offense? You read, quote, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brethren outside. Shem and Japheth took their garments, and laid it upon both their shoulders, and went backward, 
and covered the nakedness of their father. So their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. Now, what was the offense of Ham? Now, what did he do? Carlin Datrix said it was a display of shameless sensuality, as contrasted with reverential modesty of the brothers Shem and Japheth. It seems that Ham took pleasure in his father's shame. He wanted to expose him to his brothers. It certainly shows disrespect for the father, and perhaps a perverse sort of sensual nature in the part of Ham. Now, it seems to me that's about as much as you can say about the offense. Some try to seek more, and they point to verse 24. Quote, Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Quote. They emphasize something must have been done, and some suggest that when it says in verse 22, Ham saw the nakedness of his father, that that is a euphemism, quote, saw the nakedness, end quote for some deviant sexual act. I don't think there is any real good basis to conclude that to say that. It is possible that you could understand that as a euphemism, and as a figure, and to say that there is more than literally said. Then you have to fit verse 23 with that, and verse 23 seems to just think it's just a matter of exposure of the Father. I will leave our discussion with that, and then I will look at the content of the curse and blessing next time. This ends Dr. Robert Vinoy's Old Testament History, Lecture Number 16. Mm-hmm.